What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 75 of the Adult Education Podcast. I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and today we're talking to journalist and author Danielle Friedman. I don't know where or when, actually, you're listening to this podcast, but I wanted to say thank you. Over the last couple of months, I've started to see an increase in listenership. I just, I appreciate you so much for taking some time out of your day to hang out with me and learn something new. This podcast is not a moneymaker for me. I do it because I love talking to people and learning more about them and hopefully learning more about ways that I can better myself in the process. I love that you're taking this journey with me, so thank you for that. If you want to support me or the show, please subscribe to Adult Education on whatever platform you're listening on right now. Oh, and if you can take a second to leave a rating and review, that is super helpful as well. All right, today's conversation was an interesting one. I really, really loved chatting with Danielle Friedman. She's an award-winning journalist who's had things published in outlets like the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, uh, Health, and others. Danielle also has spent time as a senior editor at NBC News and The Daily Beast, so she's got a great resume behind her. She recently published her first book, and it's all about the history of women's exercise culture. This was a fascinating read for me. I always look at exercise culture as being kind of driven by women, you know, from new trends in fitness new boutique exercise facilities and fashion. I always think of women kind of being on the front lines there. You know, the fitness industry itself is a multi-billion dollar industry and that is very much fueled by women, but it wasn't always that way. You know, at some point it was frowned upon in culture for women to exercise and to move, but thanks to some trailblazing women, the doors were kicked open and the rest is, shall we say, history. Danielle's book is called Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. That is such an appropriate title for this book too. Danielle goes back to the 60s and looks at how things changed basically by decade. She investigates trends like bar, jazzercise, those great workout videos in the 80s that we all love, and so much more. Uh, We discuss a lot of different topics, from why men used to try to keep women out of the exercise world, to the communities and bonds that are formed from exercising, and how even though I was a fashion victim with my sweatpants in middle school, I was actually a fashion trailblazer, or something like that. Now, before we jump into the conversation, just a little reminder to click the subscribe button for the adult education podcast that way you'll be notified of all future episodes and if you can leave a rating and a review i'd really appreciate that any kind words that you can share about the show help the podcast algorithms know they should push this show out to some new listeners how's it going hi (laughs) it's good (laughs) ah look at you with the fancy headphones We'll see if I can figure out how to use it. So far, so good today. So, Those are the ones all my coworkers at the radio station use. They all have the same headphones. Actually, it's funny. The, the person who recommended these is a public radio veteran. So I'm not shocked. <laughs> I always thought it was funny how everybody that I've worked with over the years, with the exception of maybe a couple, have always gone with the same headphones. Like they just, they're so, I, I don't know, territorial in a way of that. Like these are my headphones. Yeah. That's all I'm going to buy. It's part of the gear, you know, it's the, it's the look. <laughs> it is, it is. Speaking of the look, I imagine the look is uh, a big part of your book, Let's Get Physical, because I feel like athleisure and just the, the fashion of exercising is a major component to all of this. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And something that I just found so interesting in exploring this history is how the evolution of what women have worn to exercise has kind of reflected women's larger place in society and the state of exercise itself. So one of my favorite stories in the book involves the invention of the sports bra, which uh, wasn't actually invented until 1977, which I think is is like kind of shockingly recent and speaks to how 
um, well, as I explore in the book, how little women moved for so long. Um, necessity was the mother of invention there. But clothes have, they've gotten tighter, but they've also gotten a lot more conducive to moving and sweating uh, since the 1950s when my book began. I, I do think it's it's interesting. And I wish so badly that, you know, 30, 40 years ago when I was a kid, I'm 40 now, so I guess not 40 years ago, but I lived in sweatpants growing up. And mm. let me tell you, they were not cool. Uh, they were not cool <laughs> back then. My friends definitely let me know how uncool I was. I wish that we had the same mentality about like athleisure and clothing like that then that we do now, because my life would have been much easier. I know. And the pandemic has only like, has only amplified that. Sure. I feel like um, sweats are the new are the new fashion. So <laughs> it, it took them a long, a long time to get here. I like you how, were ahead of your time. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't, if you <laughs> saw pictures, I don't think you would say ahead of my time, but, <laughs> but I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, I like that your journey for this book started with you taking a bar class. I, I did that once myself, probably about the same time that you did. It's no mm -hmm. joke. Like I, I used to walk by them and think like, Oh, it's a little, you know, exercise studio. It kicked my ass. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I had been warned before my first class that um, I might not be able to walk the next day. And it was, it, it proved true. Um, and not, not everyone ends up connecting with that workout, but, but for me, you know, it really, um, I leave each class on such a high and uh, it works for me. And, and like you said, it now holds a very special place in my heart because it was the, origin of this entire project, looking into the history of women's fitness. My, the book began with a deep dive that I did into the woman who invented bar, which led me to this much bigger story of women's self-empowerment. I can't believe that bar goes back as far as it does. Like that's one of those things like, okay, I get yoga. Yoga is obviously based in a lot of uh, very yeah. old mantras and everything, but, but bar I feel like I never heard of it until about 10 years ago when these pure bar stores started opening up and not stores, but you know what I mean? And, and yeah. to look that, to learn that it came out in the sixties, it was kind of invented in the sixties. That blew my mind. I know. I know. Um, yeah, there is something about bar and it's probably because the contemporary chains weren't started until the, like the mid aughts, the early aughts really. But um, they, you know, they, they haven't exploded until more recently, but it just, it feels like something that's very, you know, 2022. Um, and, and that, that actually was what intrigued me about the fact that it actually does have this fascinating history for people who don't know. Um, it was invented by a woman named Lottie Burke, who was a, German refugee. She had fled the Nazis uh, in Germany for London in, in the 30s. And in the late 50s, she invented a workout that grew out of her dance training and combined it with yoga and what we would now call like physical therapy. And it involved just these series of minuscule movements, mostly performed at a ballet bar. It's where the name comes from. But um, despite them being minuscule, the movements have the ability to really strengthen you in, in places, you know, in muscles you didn't even know you had. Um, and the fact that Lottie herself is this larger than life character, lived such a fascinating life. It, it convinced me, well, it convinced me to try to look into the, the origin stories of the other fitness movements that lay the groundwork working out today. But it also, you know, 
I got very excited about the fact that this was a really character-driven history. There are some very fascinating, colorful, strange, you know, complicated women who are responsible for launching fitness culture. I was a little surprised, and maybe I missed it. I, I'll be honest, I have not finished the book. I have gone through it uh, quite a bit. Um, and I was a little surprised because in my head, I would have pictured women's exercise being sort of, quote unquote, created by a boardroom filled with older white men that, you know, just decided, hey, if our women work out, they'll look better for us. Like, that just sounds like a very American thing, you know, in my head, like that's something mm-hmm. that would happen. Mm-hmm. But so much of what you find or what you found in your research and what's in the book is women starting their own movements and taking control of this situation on their own. I found that so inspiring, but I was just kind of surprised there wasn't like this, you know, puppet master of men being like, go work out, ladies. You know, like I just, (laughs) I was shocked to not see more of that. Well, early on, and when I say early on, I mean like in the post-war era in the 1950s and 60s, when there were these pretty strict gender norms that were enforced. It was a time when men needed to be men and women needed to be women, you know, whatever that meant. Um, The idea that a woman would push herself in the name of strength, um, would sweat and would do so um, in a room full of other women was really pretty threatening. You know, if women became as strong as men, who knew what could happen? (laughs) However, I will say that while that literal boardroom of men might not have existed, um, the way in which fitness culture uh, became integrated into our society was was very much influenced by you know the patriarchy sure. and the idea of of pleasing you know uh, the male gaze. And so, what I mean by that is that the the women who uh, fought for to open new doors for women when it, when it came to, you know, their physical potential and exertion, um, were certainly working in favor of women's strength and, and, um, empowerment, but they often sold their workouts as a way to change the way you, you know, to, to become thinner, more beautiful, to meet a pretty rigid idea of female beauty. And, you know, in many cases, they were, they reflected the era in which they lived in. And I think they, whether consciously or not, were, were quite, you know, savvy in selling it that way for better or worse, because the culture just wasn't ready for someone, you know, for women to start lifting weights for the sake of strength, uh, 60 years ago. So, um, so yes, even though men weren't necessarily opening the aerobic studios, their presence and their desires lingered over, loomed over um, much of 20th century workout culture. Sure. And I mean, it doesn't, I guess it, it makes sense too, because when you look at some of these women that obviously, you know, created major empires and did really well to inspire other women to go out and get exercise and to move their bodies, you still had people that fit the standard of beauty, like your Jane Fonda's, your Suzanne Summers, like you, you had women that would be, you know, to most very beautiful women that were the face of this product. And yes. as much good as they did, there was still that element of we're selling this look, we're selling how good you look on a TV or something. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. In so many cases, in almost every case until recently, the woman behind the workout she was selling served as sort of her own best advertisement for the power of the workout. 
Jane Fonda is such an interesting example. I, I really enjoyed just doing, you know, a deep dive into her life and, and looking at the, the factors that led her to enter the fitness industry. She, you know, many people don't realize that when she opened her first studio in the late seventies, it was entirely to fund her then husband's political campaign, uh, Tom Hayden. And, and she was in her forties at the time too, which I, I think is so interesting. Um, the other thing about Jane Fonda that I will say is she was very much a feminist. You know, she had, she was coming off of this very, um, widely publicized uh, anti-Vietnam War activism. And in her, her fitness book, The Jane Fonda Workout, which became a huge bestseller, she talked about, you know, combating like the thin ideal and um, these male ideas of beauty. But at the same time, every woman in, in the book, every model for her workout was like extremely thin and looked you know, one way. And so it would take a really long time. And we're just beginning to see change now for there to be more body diversity in, in fitness. It's kind of a rhetorical question, but it's just one of those things I don't understand why why it would be bad for women to exercise. You know, like we were to like if a woman gets strong, God forbid what she could do with that. But like why is moving? Why is running? Like, I always had that image of the Boston Marathon and that woman that ran the Boston Marathon. I don't know if it was the first time, but with the guy coming off the sidelines and like literally trying to attack her while she's running. Why is that the hill that you want to die on? Why is letting a woman run <laughs> on the streets the thing that is going to make you so enraged that you feel like you have to physically attack her? I don't I can't get in that mindset to understand why that ruined his day. Yeah, yeah. Well, the woman you talk about, Catherine Switzer, um, is featured in the book. I interviewed her. She's she such a pioneer. She was she was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number, and the only That's way she got a number was because she, she entered using her initials. So no one, you know, the the officials didn't know she was female. And four miles in, as you said, one of the race's directors got wind that there was a woman in his race. God forbid it was. When we're not allowed to enter and he, he just, it, it enraged him and he tried to physically remove her from the course. I think that the, the, the short answer is that female strength is very threatening. Um, I think that we are conditioned um, and even, you know, this is even still today to a large extent and depending on the type of community you grow up in, like we are conditioned to see men as being stronger than women. And, and when that um, when that norm or belief is challenged, I think it can feel really destabilizing for some people. Um, you know, you even think about this as, you think about like the fact that it's still kind of considered unusual for in a couple for like a husband to be shorter than his wife, or, you know, when it comes to size, there's just, you know, going back to the beginning to like biblical times, you know, there's this idea that the correct social yeah. order is for men to be strong, women to be, you know, to basically defer to that strength. You mentioned the word community there, and that's something that I've always found interesting. And one of the things that 
I don't want to say turned me off from the bar class, but I, I felt a little uncomfortable because I felt like I was infringing on a community. Like I was going in just mm. to try it because I'd never done it before. And I was curious that a friend of mine was in the class and I was like, hey, do you mind if I come join? And none of them said anything or made me feel bad about it. Like everybody was so welcoming and great. But I felt like I was infringing on a community of women that was like, this was their moment to have that time together. They all knew each other. They were friends. They got coffee together afterwards. And then here I was, the, like the man walking in, and like, take, and I was like, I, you know, I appreciate that you have this. I want you to enjoy it. I want this to be yours. And and when I think back to other elements, like there's a lot of all female gyms. A lot of the boutique studios tend to be much more predominantly women that take the classes. When men work out, it doesn't have that community feel. Like when men work out, it's like mm -hmm. I'm gonna go lift some weights. I'll do my thing. Maybe I'll spot my bro over here or whatever. But like that, that's it. You know. Then they go home and they're done. But there is, there does seem to be a community element to female exercising, female movement. Absolutely, yes. And I think that is especially true in in smaller towns or communities and cities across the country. Sometimes I'm in New York, you know, sometimes in big cities, it can feel a little more anonymous. But that feeling of community is, uh, I explain in the book, is also very powerful. And when you, you know, when you think about it, um, just historically, there have been so many male spaces where women were not welcome. Um, from that symbolic boardroom, you know, to, to, to gyms for a long time uh, were not open to women. Or if they were, it was on special ladies' days. Early gyms didn't often didn't have women's restrooms or locker rooms because why would they need them, you know? And so there is, I think, something very special that's not always acknowledged about the space that a lot of these workouts provide. Um, for women to just be surrounded by a community of other women. You're right, there's no rule. Of course, men are, are, are welcome as well, but um, it, it's sort of a um, self-reinforcing type of, of cycle where women know that for the most part, they will be, they won't have to worry sort of about how they might, you know, look or come across to um, to men. Yeah. And many of the women I interviewed for my book also talk about how those communities that they developed through exercise have been really important throughout the arc of their life. And these were women who were, I, I spoke with many women who are now, you know, in their eighties. And, um, we, we know too, thanks to scientific research that when we move with other people, and especially when we move in sync with other people, there are special chemicals that are released in our bodies that create feelings of social trust and bonding and a sense of purpose. And um, that I think that's something really special about women's fitness culture. You have that quote right at the beginning of your book from Legally Blonde, which I can't find right now, but uh, I think you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> um, endorphins. Yeah, the yeah, endorphins happy one. people yes. don't shoot their... Thank yeah, you. Yeah. But another community that I had no idea still existed until I read your book was the Jazzercise community. Mm. I, I mean, I remember as a kid, I was big on the Disney Channel. They had one called Mousercise where kids would work out. Yeah. It was a very mm -hmm. similar thing. Um, but to find out there was still like something like 8,000 plus Jazzercise locations in 2019, I think it was, that blew my mind. I know, I know. Um, it blew my mind too. And it's the the creator of Jazzercise, Judy Shepard Missit, who's lovely, 
um, you know, I, when you speak with her, it's, they're sort of, um, I think there's a little bit of frustration that, that people associate it only with being this like retro form of exercise from the past, but jazzercise has become the butt of some jokes. And because when you look at what it actually involved, it was aerobic dancing, but it was, it was, and is, it's become more contemporary now, but especially in its, in its early days, it was kind of, um, goofy. Like it, it was based on jazz dance. Judy Shepard missed it, had been a professional dancer trained specifically in jazz. And, um, many of the movements involve literal, you know, jazz hands, um, and just moving in this really unselfconscious way that I think, um, it's kind of easy to poke fun at. But when it first came onto the scene in the 70s, it offered women just an outlet for, for joy and for, there was something really powerful about moving in that kind of childlike and self-conscious way. Um, and, and I have to say too, they have, they've been remarkably um, adaptable over the years. They recent jazzercise, I believe it was, yeah, it was 2019 because they started in 1969. In 2019, they celebrated their 50 year anniversary and they, um, they have connected with a lot of women and they've managed to weather so many trends and changes in women's fitness since they, since they started. I, that was another one too. I didn't realize how long that, I mean, my image of jazzercise is like the stereotypical eighties image, even basically like the, the cover of the book essentially too. Um, like just that, that kind of, that kind of look is what I associate with like eighties exercising. So when I found out for, through your book that jazzercise was started in the sixties again, it's like, wow, so much of this was going on for so long. You know, I was born 81. So what the hell did I know before then? But still it's just, it's fascinating to think about how long these things have been around um, through time. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a fellow 81er, nice, <laughs> so nice. I have a, a very similar, uh, you know, vantage point, I'm sure. And yes, that was something that really intrigued me. I, I think so many people and myself included just kind of assume that fitness history begins with Jane Fonda or, you know, and, and kind of can only be traced back back to the eighties. Um, and, and I understand that because that is when it just exploded and, um, and largely thanks to Jane Fonda, we saw just this huge mass, you know, appeal of, of exercise in the eighties. But, um, but, uh, there, there is a long, rich history, uh, before the early 1980s. And it took a while for some of these workouts to catch on, you know, it makes me think about kind of like celebrities who seem to burst onto the scene overnight, or even authors who have a bestseller. And it's like, they came out of nowhere. Well, actually, they'd been toiling, <laughs> you know, in obscurity or whatever, for a really long time before they they had their moment. And so and with some of these workouts, I mean, jazzercise was sort of an instant hit for the women who experienced it initially in Chicago and then San Diego, but it took a while for, for it to go viral, for it to spread and to become a mass phenomenon. I don't know if you had this thought, but I did while reading through this. It's interesting because we talk about how, you know, men didn't want women to exercise. There were barriers to them being able to join gyms and do races and do all these things. But when they actually did, when women started creating all of these outlets, they were really 
they're the foundation for what we know of today, I think, in modern exercise. Because even back then, as much as men dominated the scene, you really only exercise if you were trying to get really big. You know, you were Muscle Beach mm-hmm. in Venice or whatever. Like, you were trying to get mm-hmm. big or you were an athlete or there was a reason for you. Like, guys didn't just go to the gym after work. Like, that's not how it worked back then. That is that is even still, like, a fairly recent thing of, like, I got to go, you know, get my 30 minutes in today or whatever. But women were so far ahead of the game of that. Like, the, the curve started with them way back. And now it's like culture has caught up to what they – kind of figured out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a great point you make about men's fitness culture, which, you know, I wish I had 300 more pages to kind of <laughs> <laughs> address that as well. Um, because the truth is that, like you said, for a really long time, men who devoted what was, you know, too much time to shaping their physique, uh, or who pumped iron, you know, were, were also viewed, um, a little bit skeptically. That type of visible muscle until really the 70s was was often seen as, you know, there was this idea that brain and brawn were incompatible. So it was like this, they were viewed as kind of like these henchmen, you know, hulking figures. And then also there, there was a link between um, uh, working on one's body and uh, one's sexuality. And so in some cases, people, people would question a man's sexuality um, or sexual orientation if he devoted too much time, too much time to his physique. And this was at a time, you know, when our society was deeply homophobic. It really began to change for men in, in the 70s largely thanks to Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually. Um, (laughs) He helped to make bodybuilding and pumping iron cool and aspirational. It's tricky because women were ahead of the curve in in harnessing exercise for that reason, you know, for, for, well, I should say for shaping their physiques, but, but it also came with, you know, tremendous pressures for women to look a certain way. Sure, sure. Uh, We talked about fashion earlier on in this conversation. I know I only have a few more minutes with you, but I I have to ask the question because I'm sure in your research you read about it. Uh, I I need to understand where the leggings with the thong came from. Like, I need to understand how that became a thing and why (laughs) why that was such a – it makes no sense to me. (laughs) I don't understand. Wait, yeah, the thong leotard, just yeah, to clarify. Yes. Yeah, that's a, the thong leotard. Sorry if I said it wrong, but it's like it's like the underwear on the outside of the pants. Like I don't really understand. Like I, it make I don't get it. So I'm sure somewhere you found out like where that came from. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when leotards first. Um, became uh, a form of mass fashion and exercise wear in the late 70s. They were actually, you know, relatively conservative. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, what happened was gyms became co-ed. And so we saw this ratcheting up of women's workout fashion to become much more sexy. And one of the writers that I quote in the book, who wrote about this in the eighties dubbed that type of leotard, the high intensity crotch, um, which I just, I mean, it's perfect. And it's like, what sounds less comfortable for working out (laughs) than a high intensity crotch, but there was this sort of peacocking, you know, the, the gym really did become like a single scene and, um, a place to see and be seen for a time for a certain type of upper middle class, you know, yuppie in the early eighties. And so it brought with it some, some misguided fashion trends, but, but women really felt good 
for a while wearing them, they felt really sexy, you know? <laughs> if, if you feel good, that's all that matters, right? Exactly. Oh, Danielle, this book is really interesting. I can't wait to finish it. There's so much great history in here, so much uh, just stuff to think about over time. Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. I think it's a perfect title uh, for this too. Danielle Freeman, is there a place people can go to find out more about you if they want to follow you or find out more about the book? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at Danielle Friedman Writes, and I document a lot of, there's a lot of archival fitness images and other fun stuff on that account, so check it out. I'm also on Twitter at dfriedmanwrites, and you can learn more about the book at danielle-friedman.com. Awesome, Danielle. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. It's a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Danielle Friedman for her time. I really enjoyed this conversation. And Danielle's writing and research is so well done. I got really into this book. I hope she decides to take on a different topic soon because I definitely want to read more from her. Let's Get Physical is available anywhere books are sold. Thank you to you for listening. Just one episode this week, but I've got some good stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Until next time, be well.